Well, I do want to invite you to open your Bibles to uh, John chapter 16. We're continuing our study of the Gospel of John together. And we're actually going to jump right into our passage uh, this morning. We're looking at John 16, and we're looking at verses 4 to 15. And this is what it says. I did not say these things to you for the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own or on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Well, I entitled this message simply, The Holy Spirit. And the reason is because as Jesus prepares his disciples for his departure, he speaks to them at length about the Holy Spirit. And I think we should be careful not to miss the significance of, Of that. Uh, If you had one final evening to spend with your friends or your family, those who are closest to you, uh, what would you spend your time talking about? I mean, you would no doubt maybe just spend some of that time reliving some of your past memories. Remember that great vacation we took together and all the fun we had while we did that. Or maybe you would spend that time just giving some, you know, sort of practical reminders or instructions about what would happen after your departure. You might say, you know, I buried a million dollars in the backyard in a wooden box under the oak tree, right? Something like that. By the way, we don't have an oak tree or a box with a million dollars in the backyard, so don't come to my house looking for that. But you give those sorts of instructions. I think you'd spend some time doing that. And I think it's significant that as Jesus spends this final evening with his disciples, he enters into a discussion of the Trinity with them. I think that ought to be instructive for us. Sometimes when we hear that a message is going to be more along theological lines, we are tempted to just sort of tune out. Well, maybe, you know, save that for theology class. And what about the guests? I mean, is it really wise to have a theological message when, you know, there's guests that are coming? Won't it be sort of over their heads? Or what about the teenagers? Isn't there a danger of losing them if we talk about theology? Right? So we expect them to learn, you know, calculus and physics, but let's not get too complex and scare them away with a little bit of theology. Now, I don't think it's ever a good idea to get sort of lost in the weeds of the finer details and debates of theology on a Sunday morning, but theology is simply the study of God, and I think it's, it's time, it's high time that the church took that seriously. So we're focusing on the Holy Spirit this morning. 
Now, usually if you hear that, this is a message on the Holy Spirit, then you might think, well, this is going to be a message about spiritual gifts, or this is going to be a message about manifest- supernatural manifestations of the Spirit. But that is not the only sorts of things that we should, we should associate with the Holy Spirit. And I think in general, lots of people kind of has a, have a fuzzy theology about the Holy Spirit at best. So back in 2010, a surprising book uh, occupied first place on the New York Times bestseller list. That book was called Heaven is for Real. The The book was written by Todd Burpo. It purported to tell the story of a trip to heaven that his three-year-old son Colton made while he was undergoing or recovering from a life-saving surgery. Now, I've kind of riffed on that book before because of its odd and, I think, deficient view of heaven. But there's something else uh, worth noting from that book, and that is its depiction of the Holy Spirit. So Colton, the young boy, said, sitting on his lap, he discovered that Jesus, with sea-green, bluish eyes had a rainbow horse. The angel Gabriel was described in full color, along with God the Father, who also had blue eyes and was sort of just a larger version of the famous angel. The Holy Spirit, though, was described in less detail. Specifically, he was described as bluish, but hard to see. Bluish, but hard to see. I suspect that's actually the way lots of people think about the Holy Spirit. Maybe not the bluish part, but the sort of hard-to-see part, hard-to-define part. What exactly or who exactly is the Holy Spirit? Now, there are actually ditches on both sides of the road when it comes to thinking about the Holy Spirit. On one side of the ditch, or one of those ditches is occupied by those who are fixated on the manifestation of supernatural gifts and the like. Theirs is an experiential faith. I mean, you've got to be having these sorts of ecstatic experiences to really understand the Holy Spirit. The ditch on the other side of the road is occupied by those who give almost no thought to the Holy Spirit at all. Yes, yes, he's part of the Trinity, but kind of in the same way that George Harrison was part of the Beatles. He's kind of the forgotten member of the Trinity. And I think this passage has a lot to teach us about the Holy Spirit. So I've just identified four things that I think we ought to know about the Holy Spirit. And the first one is that the Holy Spirit is distinct from the Father and the Son, but not less than them. So I'm going to major on the not less than them part, but I think it's firstly important to remember that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are distinct persons within the Trinity. And the church has sometimes been sloppy with their language and their analogies in regard to the Trinity. So maybe you've heard the Trinity compared to like a three-leaf clover, because you know there are three leaves, but they're all part of the same clover. Or maybe you've heard an illustration that, you know, the Holy Spirit or the Trinity is sort of like an egg, right? You've got the shell, you've got the egg white, and you've got the yolk, but they're all part of the same egg. They all make up the egg. Well, those are both examples of the heresy of partialism, which asserts that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are not distinct persons of the Godhead, but are each sort of part of God. They're each sort of one-third of the divine. 
Others have compared the Trinity to H2O because H2O can either be a liquid or a solid or a vapor. In a similar way, others have tried to illustrate the Trinity by saying, well, you know, a man can be a husband and a father and an employer all at the same time. Both of those are really the heresy of modalism, the idea that God appeared in different modes at different times, first as the Father, then as the Son, and now as the Spirit. I like the way one contemporary theologian described the mushy understanding many people have about the Trinity, not as modalism, but as moodalism. See, moodalisms think that God is one person who has three different moods. Right? God was fatherly in the Old Testament. He was more personable in the New Testament as Jesus, and now he's sort of more spiritual. Now, the reason this is so important, the reason it's so important for us to get the doctrine of the Trinity right is because we are talking about the very nature of God, the God that we worship. In his book, Delighting in the Trinity, Michael Reeves puts it this way. He says, for what makes Christianity absolute distinct is the identity of our God, which God we worship. That is the article of faith that stands before all others. The bedrock of our faith is nothing less than God himself. And every aspect of the gospel, creation, revelation, salvation, is only Christian as far as it is the creation, revelation, and salvation of this God, the triune God. This is why it's important for us to think deeply about these things. Now, as a way to sort of underscore the distinctiveness of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, someone came up with what is referred to as the shield of the Trinity or the Trinity shield. And I think this is on screen for you. There it is. I think it's helpful because that makes it clear that the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Father is is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father, and the, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit's not the Son. And yet, they're all God. Distinct persons, but one God. Now, I know this is not, a, a, this is not supposed to be a class on the Trinity. It's supposed to be an exposition of John chapter 16. But I think this distinction of persons within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, is something we see clearly here in John chapter 16. Jesus says that he is going back to the Father and that he is going to send the Holy Spirit. That's the distinction between the persons. And that distinction is found all through this passage. The Father imparts what is his to the Son and the Son makes known what is his or imparts that to the Spirit and the Spirit imparts that to us. So we can say with great confidence, Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct from one another. But as I said, while it's important to understand that, I think we have to also understand that distinct from or even sent from doesn't mean inferior to. So we read this in verse 7. Jesus says this. He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Now, the disciples, when they heard this, they had some questions about it, and we might have questions about it as well. Their questions stem from the fact that Jesus would be leaving them, and they met that news with a profound sense of sadness and almost despair. What are we supposed to do now that Jesus will not be here? And Jesus' answer to that question is 
Interesting. Listen again to verses 6 and 7. But because I have said these things to you, your sorrow or sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, I can't send the Spirit to you. So why is it to their advantage that Jesus goes away and sends the Spirit? What, what does that mean? He can't send the Spirit until he goes. I remember reading a book on the, on the history of In-N-Out Burger. It's actually a, a really interesting uh, read, but I remember they had this company policy that the top two executives in the company were not allowed to fly on the same plane together, just in case... There was a plane crash, and, you know, they didn't want both of them to die. Kind of an ironic twist. They actually did fly on the same plane together at one point, and there was a plane crash. But that's a, a different story. But is that the kind of thing that Jesus is saying here? Look, the Father, or, you know, I, I can't be here in the Spirit as well because, you know, it's too dangerous or something like that. We, we can't both be in the same place at once. I think you... No, that's not what it means. But if that's not what it means, what does it mean? That Jesus has to go away or that unless he goes away, he can't send the Spirit. Well, Kevin DeYoung answers that question this way. He says, the will not or the cannot is because the new age of the Spirit cannot begin until Christ completes his work through his death, resurrection, ascension, and exaltation. In other words, the inauguration of God's reign begun by Christ will be completed by the Spirit, but only after the work of Christ on earth is finished. So he says, once I go, once my work is done, then my Spirit can come. So in a paradoxical way, it's actually better that Jesus has left. That's what he means. It's to your advantage that I go away. Now, I wonder for us today if we actually believe that at times. I mean, how often do we find ourselves thinking, man, it would just be so much easier to believe if Jesus were here with us. I mean, if I could just, you know, sit down with him and have lunch with him and talk with him, if I could just witness some of his miracles firsthand, it would be so much easier to believe. Look, many of us have entertained that thought at one time or another. But that's not what happened in the first century. It's unlikely our response would have been any different. Now, the Holy Spirit is not less than Jesus. He's not less than the Son. Jesus says it's actually to our advantage that he goes away because then the Spirit will come. And I think sometimes... We're tempted to think of the Holy Spirit as sort of like a substitute teacher or an understudy, right? Not, not quite the genuine article. I mean, let's say you, you, know, you take a trip to New York, and one of the items on your bucket list is to take in a Broadway show. You're going to see you know, Les Mis or something like that. But when you get there and you take your seat for that performance... You know, they begin with an announcement. Well, hey, actually, you know, the, the character who, who normally plays Jean Valjean is actually being performed by an understudy today because the, the main character or the main guy is sick, right? Even if you're not up on sort of Broadway personalities and all of that stuff, you'd probably feel a little bit disappointed. Well, we're just getting the understudy and not the genuine article. That's the way some people feel about the Holy Spirit, Right? 
Jesus isn't here, but we get the Holy Spirit. And that is not the way we should think about this. Jesus doesn't speak that way about the Holy Spirit at all. He says, actually, it's to your advantage that I go away. Because when I go away, then I'll send the Spirit to you. So what is advantageous about the Spirit coming? Well, you might think about a comparison between the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., and the Internet. Now, the Library of Congress is the largest library in the world. There are more than 173 million books contained in that library. Everything that has been published and has an ISBN, you can find in the Library of Congress. But if you want to find one of the books in the Library of Congress, what you have to do is you have to fly to Washington, D.C. You have to go in, you have to get a badge. Then you have to go and locate that particular book that you are looking for. It would be amazing to be there and all of that. But if you want to access any of those 173 million books on the Internet, all you need to do is to make a few clicks and you're there. Now, it's not a perfect analogy, but there's actually a good point of comparison. Because in his incarnation, Jesus was localized. He spent his 30 to 33 years in and around Israel. Uh, Many of you know, I'll be taking a sabbatical this spring and summer. One of the things I'm hoping to do is is to get to Israel. I think it'd be amazing to be in the place where Jesus walked and taught and all of that. But you don't have to go to Israel to know Jesus. We have a relationship with Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, and I will ask the Father. Here's what he says in John 14, a little bit earlier. He says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus promised to his disciples is that the Holy Spirit won't just be with you, but he will be in you. That's the age we live in. The Apostle Paul said it this way. He said, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. See, the spirit dwells in us. That's the relationship we have with God. It's not localized in one place. The spirit actually takes up residence in us. It's actually interesting, those two verses in Romans, or that verse in Romans 8, the two parts of it, he, he says, firstly, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, and then, and then he says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, right? Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ are used interchangeably. In any case, the Holy Spirit is not less than the Father or the Son. Second thing we learn here is that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is a person not an it. And I'll make this point fairly quickly. We refer to the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Trinity, not the third part of the Trinity. 
Now, I know we hear a lot about pronouns in our day, but in terms of this passage, just note the repeated use of personal pronouns that refer to the Holy Spirit. You see it in verse 7. Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, I will not, or the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And then verse 8, And when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Verse 13, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak of His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. In verse 14, He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. So the point of that is not that the Holy Spirit has a gender, but that the Holy Spirit is a person. And the reason I point this out is because some people have a view of the Holy Spirit as as a sort of you know, kind of impersonal force, maybe like the, the force in the Star Wars movies. So is the Holy Spirit just sort of this energy that we can kind of plug into for spiritual power? That's not the biblical picture of the Holy Spirit. We actually see this all over the New Testament. Let me just take you to three places. In Ephesians 4, it says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, you cannot grieve a force, but you can grieve a person. Elsewhere, Paul refers to the Holy Spirit as interceding on our behalf. So in Romans 8, he says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Again, just notice how personal that is. The Holy Spirit actually intercedes on our behalf with the Father. That's something a person does for another. Or Acts chapter 5, which contains the fascinating story of Ananias and Sapphira. And you know that story. It's the story of this couple that lied about the proceeds of a sale of a property that they owned. And listen carefully to what Peter said to Ananias. But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. That's fascinating for a couple of reasons. One is because it shows the Holy Spirit can be lied to, that he's a person, not a force, but also because Peter equates the Holy Spirit with God. You lied to the Holy Spirit in one verse, you have lied to God in the next verse. So the Holy Spirit is a person. He grieves, he intercedes, he can be lied to. And other verses highlight the fact that he speaks, he wills, he guides. Third thing we learn about the Holy Spirit here is that the Holy Spirit both comforts and convicts. Jesus says, it's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as the helper. And he does that on a few occasions throughout this farewell discourse. In chapter 14, he says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Or in chapter 15, verse 26, he says, but when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me. Now, some translations translate that word helper as comforter. Others translate it as 
advocate. The word translated as helper is one of the Greek words you might have heard. It's the Greek word parakletos. We sometimes refer to the Holy Spirit as the paraclete. So that word is a compound word. You all know the first part of that word, right? Para, it means alongside of. So parallel lines are ones that are alongside of each other. A paradox is, you know, when you take two truths and you place them alongside of one another. The second part of that word comes from a root that means to call. The Holy Spirit then is one who is called to come alongside of us. He is the helper that we need. And the comforting or the helping role of the Holy Spirit is something we draw by way of inference from his description here as the helper or the comforter. But the direct thing Jesus speaks about here in regards to the Holy Spirit is his role as the one who convicts. Verse 8 says, And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So what does it mean to say that the Holy Spirit convicts or that his role is the one who brings conviction? Well, the word that's used here for convict is is used elsewhere in the Gospel of John. It's used in chapter 3 where Jesus said this, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. So the word that's translated exposed in John chapter 3 is the same word that's translated as convict here in John chapter 16. So one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to basically shine a giant spotlight on our sin. Now, I'm sure you've had the experience of, you know, you're sitting in a room... When the afternoon sun breaks in, a beam of light comes through the window, and all of a sudden you just see dust particles floating everywhere. Now, it's not that those dust particles were not there before. It's just that the light revealed them to you. And that's the role that the Holy Spirit plays. He shines this light, and when that light shines, it exposes the sin in our lives. You've no doubt had that experience. I mean, you think that you are doing fine. Everything appears fine from an external standpoint. But the Holy Spirit shines his light, and that reveals or awakens us to our true condition. Specifically, we're told that the Holy Spirit will convict the world in regards to sin and righteousness and judgment. And I think that's an important reminder for us. You know, the the work of evangelism is never ultimately dependent on our ability. We can't bring about a work of the Spirit in someone's life. So we sow seed, we proclaim the good news of the gospel, but only the Holy Spirit can awaken a person to see their need for a Savior. That's his job, not ours. So the Holy Spirit comforts and convicts. The fourth and final thing we learn about the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus 
by revealing the truth about him. So if negatively, if we want to put it that way, the Holy Spirit functions like a giant spotlight that shines and reveals our sin to us, positively functions like a giant spotlight that points us to the glory of Jesus. So how does he do that? Actually, you read through the Gospels and you'll find all the time, this is what the Holy Spirit is doing. He's glorifying Jesus. But specifically in our passage, listen to verses 13 to 16. It says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Uh, Jesus said something very similar to this back in chapter 14. There he said, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, what we have to remember when we read these verses is that this is what Jesus said to his disciples, to the 11 who remained. And the reason I point that out is because we might be tempted to think, well, then we don't need anything except the Holy Spirit. I mean, what do we need the Bible for if the Holy Spirit is going to guide us into all truth and cause us to remember everything that Jesus said anyway? But the promise Jesus makes here is not for us, it's for his disciples. It's only for us in the sense that the New Testament is the product of that promise. That's how we're guided into all truth. Jesus says the Spirit will glorify him by taking what is his and declaring it to his disciples. Now, just stop and think about this for a minute. Have you ever wondered how it is that the disciples went from being sort of the bumbling, clueless group of men we read about in the Gospels to being the articulate leaders of the early church? And the answer to that is that the Holy Spirit imparted this kind of knowledge to them. I mean, think about Peter for a minute. All through the Gospels, every depiction of Peter is that he's almost completely ignorant of what Jesus is up to at all times, right? He's always kind of blurting things out. He's always, you know, asking the wrong question. He's always putting his foot in his mouth. Seems like the perfect candidate to lead the early church, doesn't he? But now listen to an excerpt of what appears to be the very first sermon he ever preached. The very first sermon preached in the church. This is the beginning of the church, Acts chapter 2. It's a lengthy section, but I want you to listen to this. Here's what Peter said. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, But he himself says, 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Then it goes on to say, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. And with many other, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So just think about that. Peter in the Gospels to Peter here proclaiming the gospel on the day of Pentecost. I mean, suddenly he has the ability to unpack the entire storyline of the Bible. Explain how all of it pointed to Jesus. See, the Holy Spirit did guide him into all truth and cause him to remember all that Jesus had taught him. But notice also how the Holy Spirit worked in the hearts of those who heard Peter's preaching. It says, now when they heard this, They were cut to the heart. See, that's the Holy Spirit bringing conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment. And I'll just tell you that I try to remember that every time I get up here on a Sunday morning. My job is not to wow you with with clever preaching. My job is to open the Bible to you, to proclaim the good news of the gospel, the Spirit-empowered works or words in this book. And my prayer each week is that the Holy Spirit would take those words and awaken your hearts to the truth of them. That's His word. That's His job. We ought to be thankful that the Holy Spirit brings both comfort and conviction to us. Let's pray as we close. Father, we thank You today for the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the role, the roles that he plays in our lives. We know that we would be utterly lost without him. We thank you for the fact that he awakened us, that he shone this spotlight into our lives and revealed to us the nature of our sin and our need for you. And God, we thank you that that the work of the Spirit does not end there, but now he empowers us to live lives of faithfulness to you, lives that will bring you glory. And so, God, we pray as we learn what this means as a church, we pray that we would uh, learn to depend on the Holy Spirit, that we would, our lives would be empowered by him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.